following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, we are in 2 Peter. Uh, and today is going to be interesting. So let's just read the passage and then we'll be off and running. 2 Peter, we're in chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, oh, I should note, um, I use the voice primarily as the translation from which I pull scripture. As we are reading through sections, I will often kind of bring in some helpful commentary just so we understand the context of what's being said. So if what's in your Bible is a little shorter than what I'm giving you on the screen, know that I'm just trying to add some stuff to help clarify. Um, I'm not trying to uh, have my words be more important than scripture. They're just there to add some clarification. So be sure to check in your Bibles uh, for the heart of it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since I want you to be effective and productive rather than nearsighted and blind, that's what we talked about last week, work that much harder to confirm that God has called or elected you and claimed you. If you do this, you'll never fall into misery or become wretched or fall away from the faith. There's some difference of opinion about how to translate that particular word. And a rich welcome with a lavish entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Anointed, our liberating King, will be added to you. That's epicorego. We talked the other week about add to your faith this, this, this. That was the word. This is the same word. God's going to add something to us. We're going to finish the morning talking about that. That is why I will keep reminding you of these things, even though I know that you believe them and you've made these truths a part of your lives. As long as I draw breath, I know it is right for me to keep on stirring you up with these reminders. I know that soon I must die and lay down this old body that's been my home. Our Lord Jesus the anointed has told me so. But before my exodus from this life, I want to be certain you'll be able to call these things to mind anytime you need them, even after I'm gone. This is an interesting context, by the way, to all of Second Peter. He writes people going, listen, I'm dying. I mean, not only do I think this, but Jesus confirmed it. <laughs> so I need to impart some important things to you before I go, because I might not get to say them again. It adds a kind of weightiness to this particular book as we're going through it. So I want to talk this morning about what it means that our calling or our election is to be made certain or made sure or confirmed. And then there seems to be a hint that we could lose it, uh, that we either become miserable and wretched or we actually fall away from the faith. So as long as I've been here at the church, which is I don't know how many years, you'll have to ask my wife, um, and I don't even know how many years I've been preaching of that time. I have no idea. I think she's trying to signal me, but my eyes are old. I have never done a sermon on the topic of uh, the question of election. Uh, we've talked before about the tension of Calvinism and Arminianism. If you're not familiar with this, um, and I'm going to paint with a really broad brush here, the Calvinists are kind of reformed tradition, talks a lot about God's predestination and God's election and God's keeping you safe and God choosing and things like that. The Arminian tradition has taken a different stance, and they talk much more about the role of human free will that we choose, etc. So there's been this tension throughout the history of the church for probably, um, once again, broad brush, 2,000 years. But there's something everyone agrees upon. You can be Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox or Calvinist or Arminian, you name it. You'll agree on these things. The Bible is clear that God elects. 
The Bible is clear that God ordains. The Bible is clear that God predestines and foreknows and that somehow we still have to confirm it. Everyone agrees that this language is in the Bible. That's not the issue. The question is, how do you best understand what the original authors were trying to convey and what the original audience heard? And a lot of that then has to do throughout the centuries of Christians wrestling with questions about the original language and the context and the images and all types of things like that. So that's what I'm going to walk into this morning. I'm not that excited about it, honestly. I don't want to walk into this in some ways. No, I'm excited about it. I take that back. I enjoy wrestling with stuff like this. Um, it's just that there's some issues, like when I walk into them, I'm, it's like a Godzilla approach. I'm just like, ah, at like, is Jesus Christ in the flesh? That's a Godzilla pose. The vision fire shooting out my mouth. My tail is knocking stuff over on the stage. Like, I'll thunder up on the stage and talk about that because I'm super confident. Like, bring it, Mothra. Like, you got nothing, right? <laughs> There's other times it reminds me a little bit of how Bugs Bunny um, walks behind Elmer Fudd when Elmer Fudd's hunting, <laughs> kind of tiptoeing. That's how I approached it this morning. So I just want you to know I'm tiptoeing into this. Um, just because I recognize it can be a point of tension. And because I feel like this is an issue that I will continue to wrestle with until I die, honestly. Uh, I think the Bible was written in such a way to allow us to wrestle with this, to constantly come back and ask the question, what is the role of human free will? What is the role of God's sovereignty? What does it mean that God elects and yet I respond and I choose? What I, I think that kind of tension is meant to, number one, push us into the text. Number two, push us into community so that we're talking with other people as we wrestle with the text. One thing I don't think it's meant to do is divide us. So, I'm a really strong believer that Arminians and Calvinists will share heaven together. So let's practice, right? So whatever your stance is on this, and however you feel about what I have to say, uh, let's practice for eternity um, in the process. So the Old and New Testament were written in different languages. Old Testament is Hebrew and Aramaic. New Testament, by the time you get to Septuagint, it's in Greek. Eventually you get the Latin Vulgate. So one of the interesting things about understanding what Scripture is saying is understanding the language and what it means. To understand a language and what it means, you have to do more than study individual words. You have to study the context. So I walked into this room this morning, and I said, this room is cool. And I meant the temperature was delightfully chilly. Now, I, I could also mean that the room is cool. I really love the decoration that's happened here over the years. But not only would you have to know the English language and that there's a word cool, you'd have to know the context that it's being used in. So this is part of what we have to explore. We're looking for what the original audience would have understood. Uh, a guy named John Walton talks about the cognitive environment of when something was written. All that means is it's just our brain. It's the environment in which our brain is formed, how we think about the world. And the Bible was written in particular cognitive environments. People thought about the world in particular ways. And as God reveals himself, first through Hebrew and Aramaic, and then as we get the Greek and then translations into the Greek from the Hebrew and Aramaic, we're asking ourselves questions about this environment so that we understand it.
So uh, I'm going to give my best current understanding of what to do with this passage. Um, as always, I invite you, come to Message Plus if you have follow-up questions and discussions. Um, we'll talk through it. So I have to walk through a number of points. This is going to be a little bit of teaching here, and then I'll try to turn it into preaching. So there's a couple words in the Hebrew and the Old Testament that are roughly translated as elect in the New Testament. So the Greek takes this one word, eklektos, and uh, they use that to translate all of the Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are used in various ways for something to be chosen or appointed. So one thing to note is that um, it's going to muddy the waters just a little bit because the Greek word also has to do with not just choosing something, but that something is choice, like a choice steak, like it's excellent and it's of great quality. So you actually have this word eklektos, which we translate as elect, covering words in the Old Testament that not only mean choose, but also that means something is of great quality. And so you're already, as you make this translation and we begin to talk with election, we have to understand that the Greek is casting a broader net with this than the Hebrew did. So we're going to have to dig through that for just a little bit. Just to give you one example, when Joseph has a dream about the skinny cows and the fat cows, the fat cows, the Greek translates as eklektos. They were choice, like a choice steak, right? They were delightful. They were excellent. But then when God calls Abraham and selects Abraham, that's also eklektos. So you see right there, the same word in the Greek can mean two very different things as it's applied to discussion of the Hebrew. So part of what you walk through is how languages, you have to be careful that you understand what the language is trying to convey. In the Old Testament, once again, I'm creating the environment here that formed the largely Jewish readers of our New Testament context. In the Old Testament, the objects of God's choice or God's appointment, they included things, Aaron's rod, they include events like fasts, places like Shiloh, individuals like Abraham, and corporate entities like Israel. So you're going to read a lot of language in the Old Testament that God chooses or appoints things, people, places, events. He's doing this all the time. Then you'll notice that in the Old Testament, sometimes choice is actually merited or earned. Like Noah found favor in the eyes of God because he was righteous. You see other people like Phinehas and the Levites who were given a particular role in the Jewish community, they found favor in God's eyes because of something that they did. It was merited. But others are unmerited. Abraham and Israel uh, were remarkably unimpressive when God chose them. I mean, Abraham was an idolater. Israel, I mean, God makes clear over and over, like, uh, I didn't get you all because you were so amazing. Uh, I'm just going to do something amazing with you. So some choice in the Old Testament is merited, some choice is unmerited. The closest use that I can see of what we would call salvific choice, salvific simply means something that leads to salvation, would be what's involving the Israelites. And I'm just saying that's the closest, it's not a perfect transition here. So they're set aside by God. Old Testament word is holy. It says, I'm going to take you, I'm going to set you aside for my purposes. That's all holy means is set apart. And then I'm going to do something with you. You're going to get to know me in ways other people don't, and then you're going to go out to the world and tell other people about me. So he chooses a group of people. He says, you, Israel, will be my people. This is something called corporate election. 
That is, God chooses a people group to accomplish his purposes. And I might add, I, I don't know that Arminians and Calvinists actually disagree about the issue of corporate election. Next point. When someone was chosen or appointed, what we translate in the Greek as elected, they were always appointed to something. So they were appointed by God. God chose them and said, I want you to go do this. And sometimes a king was chosen to go here. David, I am choosing you because I need you to do this. Cyrus, who wasn't even an Israelite, I'm choosing you to go do this. Uh, Aaron's rod, I have a plan for you. You're going to bud. Uh, different things like that. There's always a purpose. It's appointed to something. And in the case of Abraham and Israel, they're chosen to bring God's blessing through Abraham to all the nations. This was eventually going to be fulfilled in the birth of Christ. The next thing to note is that choosing Israel or Abraham was not a sign that God was going to discard or had no use for the rest of the world. I want to give you two passages, both from the prophet Isaiah. The first is from Isaiah 19, beginning in verse 19. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Syria. The Syrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Syrians will worship together. And in that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Syria, a blessing on the earth. So Israel was created to be a blessing on the earth. Note, the Egyptians and the Syrians get to join them. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Syria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Isaiah chapter 45, beginning at verse 20. Gather together and come, assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what it is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from a distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So choosing Israel as God's people didn't mean the Egyptians could not be blessed as God's people or the Assyrians couldn't be his handiwork. And choosing Israel didn't mean people from all over the ends of the earth couldn't come. Next point. Their appointment or their choice was confirmed through faithfulness. And uh, I have some links where you can go to some sites that will give you a whole bunch of references for this. I'm not including them if my notes are on the screen because they take up a lot of space. Just follow the clues. So the Old Testament talks a lot about a group of people called the remnant. And that is within this elect group of Israelites, this chosen people to do God's will, not all of them did it. Only a portion of them did it. That's the remnant. They were the faithful ones who actually did what God set them aside to do. So being born into that elect community did not automatically make a Jewish person a part of the covenant-honoring remnant that was in Israel. In fact, Joel is specific. It's those who call upon God. Those are the ones who are fulfilling the purpose for which they were set aside. 
There's numerous passages that indicate offending Israelites could be cut off from their people. And that could be everything from excommunication to making them move. There's a number of ways to understand this. And Paul would eventually note in Romans 9, verse 6, uh, and he says this to his audience as, as if they already all understood this. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In fact, he says, not all who are descended from Abraham belong to Abraham. In other words, just because you were set into that group, that wasn't enough for you to be what God set you apart to be. You confirm it with faithfulness to carry out the mission. Paul notes in Romans 11, which, by the way, is a thick chapter on this issue, and there's a whole lot to be said about it. Because of the transgression of the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles, Their transgression, the Jewish transgression, actually means riches for the world. Their rejection brought reconciliation to the world. If if I'm understanding reconciliation, it, it brings entrance into this elect community to the world. And this would seem to line up with the Old Testament prophet's vision of the expansion of an elect community from nations that were not elected. So this is what stands out to me about this. Peter's speaking to an audience that has a cognitive environment that has been formed by the Old Testament. So they have a common understanding. God chooses people. He chooses places. He chooses things. He chooses events. God chooses a lot. There's a covenant community that God chose, which is the people of Israel. Outsiders can enter into it. Insiders can be cast out of it. And then there's a faithful remnant which is what they desire to be a part of. And in fact, if you read some of the writings between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, uh, the Catholic Bible contains quite a few of them. You'll read more discussion in there of this idea that there's only a remnant. There's only a remnant that are actually faithful and actually are of the true Israel, so to speak. So, as I look at that environment and I see this language that Second Peter is using, Uh, I would summarize it in these four ways. In the new covenant initiated by Jesus, God has elected, that is, chosen or appointed, a new kind of corporate community, that is, the church. Anyone from all the ends of the earth can join this family or this people of God through what we call the new birth of salvation. The people in the church are to be the vehicle to represent God and carry his message to the world, going into the highways and byways and compelling them to come in, Luke 14. And this calling is confirmed by our committed and enduring life. So, if you're in the church, through the new birth of salvation, by that I don't simply mean you attend. When I say in the church, I mean that there was a point in your life where you consciously surrendered yourself to the lordship of Christ. You said, okay, I believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is, God of the flesh. I believe his life, death, resurrection. His death has atoned for my sins. His resurrection power shows he has the power to bring me new life. Amen. Even if I don't understand everything about it, amen. I will follow Jesus. I will surrender my life to him. First message in this series was when Peter said he was a doulos of Christ. That's the idea. I am a servant. I'm committed. I now have a heavenly master. That's what we're talking about now. We talk about being in the church. So if you're in the church through the new birth of salvation, you're one of those called into the group that God has elected or chosen to get to know him better as the epigenosis we talked about the other week and make him known to the world so that more people will enter into this elect community and get to know God better and go back out and draw more people into this 
covenant of the elect. So maybe you're wondering, um, I'm not sure if I'm actually saved because there's this faithful remnant. I mean, the New Testament, Jesus warned, the New Testament writers warned, uh, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom. Uh, there will be people on the final day who will say, Lord, I did all these things, and Jesus will say, I didn't, I didn't know you. Right? So th- there can be some, some fear that goes with this. I committed my life to Jesus. I'm trying to, trying to stay plugged into the church, but I, I just don't know if I'm actually part of this faithful remnant. Am I really part of the elect? So Peter gives you a solution. He says, confirm it. Confirm it. How do you confirm it? You go back to the last week's sermon. Add to your faith this, 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 this. It's this commitment to ongoing maturity and ongoing surrender to Christ. It's not about perfection. Anybody here perfect? Good, we're all on the same page. It's not about perfection. It's about commitment. It's about steadfastness. It's about, I've given my life to God. When I stumble and fall, when I sin, I reach up, God pulls me back up, and I keep on going. I don't, I don't walk away from my faith. I don't give up. The, the sign of certainty is steadfastness. I like how Adam Clark says it. He's a commentator that I often draw from uh, as I prepare my sermons He said, he who does not, by good works, confirm his calling and election will soon have neither. And although no good works ever did purchase or ever can purchase the kingdom of God, no soul can scripturally expect to see God who has them not. I was hungry, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. Go, you cursed. I was hungry, you gave me meat, etc. Come, you blessed. So I would just say this, if you've committed your life to Jesus, live a life committed to Jesus. Uh, It's a pretty complex idea here. If you have committed, stay committed. What does commitment look like? It looks like just putting one foot in front of the other and moving deeper into relationship with Christ. My wife and I were talking about this Friday evening, I think. We were driving toward game night. I was kind of giving her an overview of the sermon. Thanks for being my practice audience. And we were talking about just an analogy um, for Sheila and I in our marriage. How do we know we're committed to each other? Because we're steadfast. Has it been perfect? Has it always been delightful? No, it's been hard. There's been struggles, there's been trial, there's been anger. We often loved each other and didn't like each other. Um, you, you married folk know what I mean by that. Don't shake your head. <laughs> and so we were like, um, yeah, how, how do we know? At the end of the day, how do we know we're committed to each other? Because we put one foot in front of the other. Walk through life together toward Christ and toward each other. You know, we fail each other, we help each other back up, and we keep on going. That, that's the sign of commitment is commitment. And, yeah, the sign of commitment is commitment. 
and Peter already noted here in this chapter, um, one way we commit is by we seek to add these things to our faith. God gives us his faith. Okay, we want to add to them. We're going to finish this morning with what God adds to us, which is fantastic. But I've talked about this before. There's this sweat equity we invest in the kingdom. We're not going to do it perfectly. But, man, we, we see the joy set before us. We see the goal. We understand what we're shooting for. We have God's direction. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the people of God around us, and, and we just stay committed. In the midst of the ups and downs, we move forward. Peter says, as long as you practice these things, you'll never fall into, okay, so most translations say fall away. This could be, once again, you'll never fall into misery, you'll never become wretched, or maybe you'll never fall away from the faith. It probably depends a little bit on how you're inclined to read the rest of the Bible on what you do with that word. But the bottom line is this. As long as you practice these things, this is, once again, going back to last week, the things we add on. You practice them, you'll never fall into misery or become wretched. And worst case scenario, you won't fall away. So these things were moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and Christian love. If by perseverance we keep walking into these graces, and by that I simply mean we recognizing that God is empowering us to equip us for what he's called us to, we see the kind of life or the kind of person we are called to be, and we commit to moving into it to studying it, to learning, to being accountable to God and others, to praying. We're, we recognize this is the goal that God has laid out. This is the path he has laid out. It's a lifestyle characterized by growth in these qualities. And I don't mean everybody grows at the same rate and at the same time. I simply mean this is who you were when you were without Christ. Now you have Christ. You're heading in that direction. And in your life with Jesus is characterized by movement in the direction of ever-increasing righteousness. Okay, did anybody hear me say perfection? Did anybody hear me say you will have arrived on this side of heaven? This is simply about the movement, the trajectory, the path of our life. And then Peter says if you do that, you never have to worry about moral misery or wretchedness of character. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. If I'm a greedy person and God is moving me to generosity, so once again, his word, his spirit transforming me, but I'm also doing the disciplines of, oh, dear God, I'm a greedy person. Uh, I, I got work to do. I'm praying. I'm surrendering. I'm, I'm, I'm putting things in place in my life, healthy boundaries to help me address this. I'm and I move from greed to generosity, does that sound like moral misery? Sounds delightful, right? It's how you move from lust to love. Self-centeredness becomes other-centeredness. Meanness becomes kindness. Hatred becomes compassion. Impatience becomes patience. Domination becomes servanthood. Arrogance becomes humility. That is the opposite of moral misery and the opposite of wretchedness of character. Why would we not commit ourselves to this? I mean, if we want to just stay in a space of greed and lust and meanness and hatred and arrogance, you can. You can stay in that spot if you want to. My question would be, why, why would you? Why would we? I mean, this, this is, 
I mean, this, this is biblical revelation that is eminently practical. Would, would you like to have better moral character and not feel wretched? Yes, I would. Let's learn generosity. Okay. Slowly moving. It, it might be you resist, and I'm not sure which motions to give for this now. Uh, it might be that kicking and screaming, you're pulled into generosity. But when you are pulled into generosity and love and other-centeredness and kindness and compassion and patience and servanthood, this is a moral depth and maturity, and it is uh, just a glimpse of, of how heaven, I think, will ultimately transform us. Maybe you know this already from your life. You have an experience where there was something that characterized your life where you were miserable and you were wretched. And perhaps you were a follower of Jesus and it was even taking you to the point where you were considering walking away. And then God steps in and he does a work. And you begin to see what he offers and you cooperate with the work of God. You invest your sweat equity into this path and you begin to add on and add on. And now you look back in your life and you go, what was I thinking? What was I doing there? Why would I have ever have stayed there when this was offered? It's mud puddles and now I have the ocean. So there's a lot of questions that swirl around how to properly understand the term election, but one thing is certain. A changed life is the mark of the calling and claiming of God. And we fail. I mentioned that. We stumble. We're not perfect on this side of heaven. But one thing Peter makes clear, and this is God's revelation to us, uh, we won't become wretched fools if we consistently put into practice these spiritual graces of moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and agape love. And then we get to what God adds to us, a rich welcome with a lavish entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Anointed, our liberating King, will be added, same word as how you add graces, this will be added to us, from God. So here's the metaphor. Um, this rich welcome with a lavish entrance, those words meant something to a Greek audience. If you were an athlete in the games and you won and you came home to your city, they would actually create a new entrance for you so you didn't have to come in the common entrance. Uh, if it had a wall, they actually busted a hole in the wall and created something new for their returning Olympian champions to enter through. That's the imagery. A rich welcome with a lavish entrance into the eternal kingdom of God will be added to you. It's just as a reminder, um, what, what does God offer to us that is entrance into the kingdom of God? It's, is there a better gift? Those of you who have walked with God for years, I feel like you'd have a lot of stories. I'm only 50 or depending on your perspective, I'm already 50, however you want to look at it. I kid about myself being old, but I hope I have several more decades to continue to define old. Um, the longer I'm alive, the more it is clear to me that I never understood the richness of the kingdom of God when I was younger. I was telling someone the other day, 
I feel like the older I get and the more I study the Bible, it's like the Bible used to be two-dimensional. It was just in front of me, words on paper, paper on a table, just like flat. And it feels like the longer I walk with Christ, like the bottom drops out and it turns into this 3D kind of masterpiece that I keep looking at more and more because it's deeper than I ever imagined. And I keep looking and I can't see the bottom. And I'm realizing that this is is what the kingdom offers us, is this richness to life. We can't actually see the bottom of it in that sense. That what God is offering to us through Christ is an entrance into a kingdom that is majestic and deep and profound beyond our ability to comprehend. But we have the privilege of being able to experience it and Peter is, is showing us precisely how to do that. We surrender ourselves as a dual loss of Christ. I am yours. You get to order my life. All right. What's that going to look like? Well, first message in this sermon, the longer we do it, the more we become transformed into the image of the master. It's, it's a profound promise. Well, how does that happen? Okay, well, God works in you, but you're also adding to your faith these things. You're going to invest. You'll invest in the kingdom life. And then what happens? Oh, basically, welcome home. And it's not just life on the other side in the world to come, but there's something about this life that Jesus says, life more abundant. Come that you might have life, rich, deep, meaningful, good life. So, as I was looking at this this week, the, the question of what election means in terms of asking the question, am I elect, seems to be not to be the main point. The main point is what is life like in this group that the Bible refers to as chosen, called, elect, whatever word you want to use, what is promised to us? Oh, oh, the fullness of the riches of what Jesus offers. And it changes everything. I missed my final thing here. Last, last slide. Are you called to follow Jesus? Yes. We're all called. I think the Bible is abundantly clear that the message of the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. So if you're wondering, is Jesus calling me? Yes. Yes, he is. Are you elect? Well, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you experienced the new birth? Are you part of God's covenant people and thus the church? Then yes. Have you confirmed it? This is the big question this morning. Uh, Have you given up? Or are you putting one foot in front of the other as you follow a God who is invested in making your calling sure? This feels like a good Sunday just to say, If you've not yet surrendered your life to Christ, do it. If you've not become a doulos, a servant of God Almighty, this is the day. But also, if you're you're uncertain, if you don't feel like you have confirmed that you're actually one of God's people, I just need to encourage you. You need to talk and pray with Christian brothers and sisters. You need their encouragement. You need to cling to the word of God that reminds us that faithfulness to God 
This is, the, this is the mark. But if you're struggling with it, please don't struggle with it alone. Find someone to talk with about it. Find another Christian. And you could say, I, I, I need to know. I have this uncertainty in my life that can lead to really good conversations about why that might be and, and how to understand what God is offering to us to confirm this. That could mean coming up and praying with someone this morning. That could mean talking to someone else in this audience or making a plan for coffee this week. There's all kinds of ways you can go about this. But if there's something about this this morning where you believe God's Spirit is pushing at you, uh, don't ignore it. Respond to it. Lord, I'm grateful that you're a God who calls us. I mean, that, that's remarkable in and of itself. You're God who calls us. And then you're God who chooses us. That, that you have this plan that on earth, that your church will be this um, elect group of people that you use to, to spread the good news of the gospel to all the world. Uh, that too is just a, it's, it's a remarkable privilege and a, a sobering responsibility. And Lord, we pray uh, that we, your people, that we get to know you so that as we represent you and speak of you and seek to point others to you, our representation of you um, is true and compelling. Uh, I'm grateful, Lord, it's not all up to us, but to the extent that we are your servants, help us to do that well, Lord. And then finally, um, I pray that that we make our confirmation sure and that we have peace knowing that we are yours. And Lord, for those in this room who do not have peace knowing they are yours, I pray for the work of your spirit, for the power of your word, and for the community of your people um, to address why that is what it looks like to understand commitment to you and peace in the midst of that commitment. Thank you for being a loving God. Praise in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.